0: Thank you so much, Praise Team. Those were wonderful songs to sing as we prepare to open God's Word together. Thank you, Kathy. We appreciate your wonderful spirit as you pray for us. When I was a small boy, my grandfather came to live with us until he died. He came after he, rele- he was released from Morgan Heights here in Marquette, where he was being treated for tuberculosis And he was at the lowest point of his life. My grandmother died while he was at the sanatorium. She was in Rapid River where she died. So he was now alone after 50 years of marriage. He was in bad health with emphysema. And he really was a pauper. He only had $50 a month to live on. His independence was gone and he had to come and live with us. Because, quite frankly, there was nowhere else for him to go. And we were so grateful that he could spend his remaining years in our home. One day he sat dejected on the side of his bed. And my father went up to him and said, Grandpa, what is wrong? And he responded, I've never really lived for the Lord. Of all things to say, I've never really lived for the Lord. But it was true. Grandma was a very strong Christian who loved the Lord, but Grandpa had not been. He had very little time for God. And now, with everything gone and time to think, God was working on His conscience. And when I look back, I realize that the things that happened to Him were probably the best for him, because God was using those things to deal with his soul and causing him to think very seriously about God. Do you know God will do the same with us, whether we are Christians or non-Christians? There was a wonderful man God wonderfully used many years ago, whose name was James McConkie. The biography written about him is simply entitled, A Man of God. He was instrumental in the founding of the Africa Inland Mission, which to this very day blesses multitudes all across Africa. And I want you to notice what this man of God said. The Lord has to break us down at the strongest part of our self-life before He can have His own way of blessing us. All of us know that's instinctively true, don't we? When we see that, we recognize this is true. Much of the self-life remains within us. And if we don't know it, the people around us do, don't they? Our spouse knows it. Our children know it. Our families know it. Our Christian friends know it. And so God has to break us down so He can bless us and use us in the way that He intends. And so, this morning, a simple question. Will you let God break you down? Will I? Will we accept that work in our life? Now, how does God do that? How does He break us down? Well, that's what we're going to see this morning as we move into Genesis chapter 43. And I want to bring a message entitled in our series, A Fruitful Life Accepts the Refiners' Fire. And I'd like you to open your Bibles this morning first to Genesis 42 and look with me at verses 15 and 16 as you do. I'm going to ask our video tech to push that little button in the back, which will help me a great deal as we move along here, okay? And I want you to notice verses 15 and 16, so that I can see the monitor in the back, if you would do that. Thank you very much. Look with me, if you would, at verses 15 and 16, and notice what the Word of God says. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. Now let's just stop right there. And let's notice that this is what God does. He purges the self-life with the refiner's fire. When Joseph's brothers met him for the very first time in Egypt, Joseph said twice in these two verses that he was going to test them. That is a very important word in the Old Testament, and actually a very important word in the entire Bible. Look at one occurrence of it in Zechariah 13 and verse 9. This is what God says. I will refine them as silver is refined, and I will test them as gold is tested. The word for test here means to prove, to test, to try as one tries gold. And I want you to notice two things about this verse. God says to us, He subjects His people to testing just like silver and gold in a furnace. And then God says that testing refines us. It removes the impurities of the self-life from us. Uh, There was a wonderful Old Testament teacher by the name of Herbert Leupold. And I want you to listen to what he says. So far the brothers are ready to use self-accusations. They admit that a just retribution befalls the sinner. They have not, however, consciously broken with their sin, nor has it actually been overcome. The work of God upon the hearts of Joseph's brethren is only begun. Say, isn't that true of us? Let me ask you a question this morning. Is God's work upon our heart finished, or is it still continuing? What's the answer? You know, it is still continuing. The Apostle Paul said this, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. If that was true of Paul, how true of us, right? And so much of the self-life within us still needs to be purged from us and refined away And God will use the refiner's fire to bring about that purging. Now as we move into chapter 43, what we begin to discover is the kinds of refining fires that God will use. And I want you to notice the very first one in verses 1 and 2. God will use acts of God in the natural realm. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. Say, Jacob is still a problem, isn't he? This man is still a problem in the family. The way he acts is very immature, he's petulant. He's like a little child, so focused on his own pain that he cannot see the harm that he's bringing to the rest of his family. And he is still playing favorites. Now, Benjamin is the favorite who has replaced Joseph in his father's affections. And as we come to chapter 43, he tries now to send his brothers, his sons, without Benjamin, back to Egypt, even though he knew that Joseph, the man that they don't know, this leader in Egypt, had said, if you come back here, there is a death threat if you don't bring your brother Benjamin. Notice how Jacob shows no concern at all for Simeon, who's languishing in Egypt in that prison. And worst of all, as heir of the Abrahamic promises, he has no trust in God. Instead of showing how a man of God acts, as we come to this chapter, Jacob is feckless. He's wallowing in self-pity. So what does God do? He turns up the heat, doesn't he? Verse 1 says, Now the famine was severe. The word severe means very oppressive, grievous, burdensome. The famine got worse rather than better. I wonder how many of you this morning know what this image on the screen is. This is an image from the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. It was one of the worst disasters in U.S. history. Drought, crop failure, and high winds swept the plains all the way from Texas to Nebraska. 7,000 people died, mostly from the Brown Plague inhaling the dust of the Dust Bowl. Thousands more were displaced and had to head for California, being uprooted from their homes. Now, you know what we call these? They're called Acts of God. And the reason they're called Acts of God is they cannot be controlled by human beings. Often, during Acts of God like this, God uses them to speak to human beings about their sins. If I were to stop today and say, how many of us know someone here today who God got their attention in the natural realm? All of us would know somebody an accident, disease, maybe death. I knew a family, it took a death in the family before the siblings would reconcile grudges, hard hearts, lack of brotherly love, all began to change when a death occurred in the family. And we all instinctively know that just as God in my grandfather's poor health and discouragement was now speaking to his heart. When God sometimes refines us in the natural realm, He is speaking to our lives. Let me ask you a question this morning. Is God dealing with you in the natural realm? Is He? Will you let Him have His way? That's what He's longing for, to have His way. Now secondly, a second kind of refining fire that God may use is a determined authority figure. Look at verse 3. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Did you notice what Joseph's brothers now call the unknown ruler in Egypt? They call him the man. The man. Previously it had been the man, Lord of the land. Now, several times you heard it read, it is just the man. The man. That is a reference to a ruler, somebody who is in a position of authority. And I want you to notice how determined the man was, verse 3, Judah says, he solemnly warned us, don't you come back here under threat of death unless your youngest brother is with us. By the way, solemnly warned is just a double verb. In the Hebrew Bible, if you want to strengthen something and make it forceful, you just double the word. And so it literally means, warning he warned. You know what it's a way of saying? It's a way of saying, the man ain't messing around. He is not going to budge. And the determination of Joseph is the very thing this family needed to force them to change. By the way, what's the next question for us at this point? What's the next question? Has God put a the man in your life? Isn't that the question? Has God put a the man in your life? Someone you can't get around. Somebody who will not budge. They've got control and you don't. Has God put that kind of person in your life? I knew a man whose drinking was destroying his marriage, and his family. His name was George. One day his wife had had enough. And she said to George, you call the pastor, you invite him over to our house, and you start dealing with Jesus, or I am leaving. And George knew she was not joking around. And in that situation, at that moment in their marriage, she became the man that her husband needed. Do you know that began her journey, his journey towards God? And by the time I arrived, they had raised seven children. And George was one of the most effective people in our church. And I used to say to him, George, when you pass away, the roof of the church is going to cave in. And he would laugh and he would say, Pastor, there's no indispensable man. What a joy it was to have that man's funeral. And to realize that it took a determined authority figure for him to change. Do you know for some of us, the most important thing that could happen is that we lose control. You see, as long as we've got control, we do not have to change. We can remain very, very comfortable and we do not have to face the self life. But when we lose control, then all of a sudden we have to face. Some very hard things, stubbornness, pride, being a know-it-all. When I was a little boy growing up in my church, we had a man in the church who strutted around the church like a little general. Have you ever seen that? I mean, here I was just a little boy... And this guy had a, a swagger as he strutted around the church. It was very, very pathetic to see. He was overbearing. He thought he was always right. He was insensitive to the feelings of others. And finally, one day, he ran up against a church leader who he couldn't push over. And you know, he did. He left the church. I'll show them. You want to know what? It was the best thing that ever happened for him. In fact, it was an amazing thing. When he no longer had control in that church, he started changing for the better. And for the very first time in his Christian life, he really started dealing with the self life he had put off for so many years. Let's ask a very, very critical question at this point. Who is the man God has sent to change you? Who's the man God has sent to change me? Our parents? A spouse? Church leaders? A boss? A teacher in a classroom somewhere, they are not always right, but if God has sent them into our lives to be a change agent and we push them away, we're pushing God away. We're pushing God Himself away. And I know this about God, He won't be pushed away, will He? He keeps coming. He keeps coming. You push that spouse away and and he'll send a church leader. You push that church leader away and and he may send a Christian friend. You push that Christian friend away and he may send a boss. God keeps coming because He knows the self-life has to be dealt with. Now notice number 3, God will use unalterable circumstances. Look with me at verse 7, they replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to his father Israel, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would not have returned. We would now return twice. Then their father Israel said to them, Notice this. If it must be so, then do this. And you know how the story goes. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take back double the money with you, carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother, arise, and go to the man. What finally made Jacob relent? Verse 11, it must be so. There's no other way. You know, sometimes we can change our circumstances, but what about when we can't? What about when we're stuck? One Bible student says about this, the unavoidable must be met. And often, God has to keep us stuck in order to change us. Maybe you're here today and you're in a situation, you don't like the situation, you'd like to be out of it, but you're stuck. It's unalterable. I'm not happy in this situation, I feel stuck, I hate it. Have you ever thought about this? God may have you stuck because He's dealing with the self life. And if somehow you can get out of your circumstances, He knows you'll go merrily on your way. And the unalterable circumstances are unavoidable and they must be met. Early in our marriage, I've shared this with you before, I wanted to return to seminary for a second degree. I'd had enough of pastoring. The problem was, it was too early in our marriage for Ellen. She was not ready to make a change like that, and she would not go. I'd had a mentor who wisely said to me, never make a major decision without Ellen being 100% in agreement. And I have to confess to you, I was not very happy with Ellen. Not happy at all. I felt stuck. But I knew that I would do damage to our marriage if I dragged her kicking and screaming with me, so I stayed for 15 years. And I learned things in those 15 years. I could have never learned in a classroom. Looking back, I'm so grateful that God had me stuck. I had to change. And there was no other way. Fourteen years ago when God said, I am leading you to another place. Ellen said to me, I wasn't ready to go 15 years ago. I am ready to go now. She said, if God is leading you, I'm 100% behind you. And I was so thankful for the unalterable circumstances that I needed. Let me ask a simple question. What has you stuck right now you can't change? What has you stuck right now that you cannot change? Is it a spouse you cannot divorce? Is it a job you cannot quit? You've got to put food on the table? And you have to deal with a strong boss or maybe unpleasant co-workers? How about this one? Is it children you can't give away? Children have a way of humbling us, don't they? If we'll let God use those children in our lives. Or how about this? Are you stuck with a ministry that God called you to and you can't walk away from it without disobeying Him? And now in that ministry, you have to change in how you deal with other people. What has you stuck? If you say today, I'm stuck and I hate it, no, you are not stuck. God has you right where He wants you because He's dealing with the self-life. My grandfather may very well have said in those three years, I'm stuck, I hate this. But those three years were critical. And I believe I'll see Him in heaven today because of what God did in His life when He came to the place where He said, I've never really lived for God. Now, there is a condition here. This is what God does. God uses the refiner's fire to purge us from the self-life, but there is a condition, and we have to see it this morning. Look at the condition with me. God purges the self-life. Now, read the rest with me. If we submit to the refiner's fire, there's the condition. We must accept the refiner's fire, not push it away. Now, what I want us to see here this morning is two of the men that needed changing the most are dealing with the self-life. Those two men were Judah and Jacob. Look what was happening to Judah in the refiner's fire. He was being purged from hardness and self-love. And look at Jacob. He's being purged from willfulness and self-focus. By the way, don't we long to be purged from these things? so that we can be better used by God? It's okay to say amen this morning. It's okay. Church, don't we long to be purged from these things so that we can be better used by God? Who wants to go on with hardness and self-love, willfulness and self-focus? Who wants to go on with that? I'll tell you who doesn't want us to go on with it. It's God. It's God. And two of the men in the whole story that need to be changed the most are Judah and Jacob. Now, look at how Judah is changing. Look at what he says back in verses 8-10. to And Judah said to Israel his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you, and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. You know that Judah is one of the hardest characters. In all the sad events, you know it was his idea to sell Joseph. But look now, he's becoming tender. He calls Benjamin the boy. That is a term of endearment. Benjamin is in his 20s by now. He's a man. When he says the boy, it is a term of endearment. He calls the rest of his family members, the children and grandchildren, the little ones. He's softening. And then you will notice he offers himself as a pledge. He says, I will be a pledge of his safety. Remember what Reuben offered? Reuben offered his two sons. Judah offers himself. And if you say to me, Pastor, anyone can speak big words, you wait till we get to chapter 44, and Joseph says, I'm keeping Benjamin in jail, I'm sending Simeon. Judah says, Take me, not Benjamin. This man is being purged. Hardness and self love are being rooted out. And then look at Jacob. Jacob was the finger pointer. He is full of self pity. He lashes out at others. Instead of being a man of God in the situation, he says, why did you bring all this trouble on me? Now, notice verse 14. Look at this. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may He send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Do you know verse 14 is a prayer for God's blessing? It's the first time in the whole saga that Jacob prays. God Almighty is the familiar El Shaddai that his father Isaac and Abraham, his grandfather, used when they called on God for help. When he says, may El Shaddai grant you mercy, this is the very first plea in all the Bible for mercy. And later it is answered in the chapter when the Bible says Joseph had mercy on his brothers. Jacob now is in a position where he has nowhere but God to turn to. And he powerfully prays in faith, May El Shaddai, God Almighty, grant you mercy. And then did you notice how he ends? If I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. He gives God control and he accepts God's will. Let me say to you when the day comes in your life when you are giving God more control over the self life and accepting his will, that is a great, great day in your life. Do you see what purging can do? This is the power of God in using the refiner's fire in the life of a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, who will accept his purging. Thirty years ago, Ellen and I were dating. And one day she came to me and and she said, Brian, I've heard a new Steve Green song. It's entitled, The Refiner's Fire. She said, I'm not quite sure what it means. Could I play it for you? And she played for me the refiner's fire. Thirty years later now, having been subjected to much refining, in the refiner's fire. We both know exactly what that song means. It is now one of my favorite songs regarding the testing, the refining, that God does in the life of all of His children. And this morning, before we gather around the Lord's table, I want to play the song for you. The images are not as important as the words. And when we get to the end of verse one, there's a simple question Will you accept the refiner's fire? Let's listen and watch.
1: sacred heat, white heart with holy flame, and all who dare pass through its blaze will not emerge the same. Some as bronze and some as silver, All are hammered by their sufferings.
0: people said together